0: Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, and this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean Basin. I'm joined today with Dr. Stephen Hodkinson for a conversation about military in ancient Sparta. Dr. Hodkinson is Emeritus Professor, so retired with honors, Emeritus Professor, Department of Classics and Archaeology, University of Nottingham, based in the UK. He is also member of the Center for Spartan and Peloponnesian Studies. He's written many publications over his career, especially on Sparta, including a couple books as examples. He is author of Property and Wealth in Classical Sparta, which was published by Classical Press of Wales. And he is a co-editor, Sparta and War, which is also published by Classical Press of Wales. Welcome to the call, Stephen. It's good to be here, Andrew. It's great to chat with you. So we're chatting about the military of ancient Sparta. So as a background question, Stephen, can you um lay out the demarcation, if you will, for the conversation? Where would Sparta been in the ancient um period? And for this I'm gonna invert that. What uh, when we talk about the ancient period, um, what uh, time frame should we focus on the most in this conversation? And in that time frame, when people talk about the Sparta region, what are they talking about for that region?:
1: Okay, well, the time frame we're talking about is the period roughly from 550 through to 350 BC. And in this period of roughly 200 years, uh, Sparta is a city-state in southern Greece. And um, more precisely, its territory covers the southern half of the peninsula of the Peloponnese, an area of about um, 8,500 square kilometers, uh, or a bit over 3,000 square miles. And its territory is divided into two halves, um, Sparta's home territory called Lacedaemon and then separated by a mountain chain to the west uh, there's the region called Messenia which uh, Sparta conquered in an earlier period. And the other key thing to know about Sparta in this period is that there are three main population groups. There's the Spartans themselves, um, the technical ancient term is Spartiates, um, they're the full citizens of Sparta, and there's at the peak around 8,000 of them. And um, there's a second group um, known as the Perioikoi, um, and they are free but non-Spartans, and they live in communities scattered around um, Sparta's large territory. And then there's a third very important group uh, called the Helots, and they are the Spartan slaves. Um, there's many more times uh, worth of them than there are of Spartans. And they primarily farm the Spartans' estates um, uh, within their territory. They perform personal service. Um, but the reason I mention the Perioikoi and the Helots, as well as the Spartiates, is that all three groups uh, played um, important roles in Sparta's military. Um, we normally think today just of the Spartans themselves but the perioikoi and in a different way, the Helots also played key military roles.
0: And the different roles will naturally, I'm sure, come up in, in this conversation uh, today. Um, and so on a map, generally speaking, can you describe um, how far north in what would be modern-day Greece Sparta's uh, region would, would go to? Okay, um, well...
1: Uh, your uh, listeners are perhaps most likely to be familiar with modern Athens,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, which is in the sort of uh, um, southeast uh, uh, part of, uh, uh, of mainland Greece. Um, and the Peloponnese is um, uh, roughly to, to the western and slightly south of, uh, of Athens. Um, and the Spartans, as I said, control the, the southern half of the Peloponnese Peninsula. It's a very large peninsula. Um, Mm -hmm. and the southernmost part of uh, Spartan territory is actually the southernmost part of mainland Greece itself.
0: Okay, okay. Their army's composition, was it mainly foot soldiers? Did they have a navy? Uh, Did they have cavalry? Can you describe the composition of of their army from that perspective?
1: Yes, well, um, Sparta's main strength is in its um, heavy infantry. Um, the Greek term is, is hoplites. Um, and um, for most of our period, um, the Spartans themselves um, are purely uh, hoplite, uh, heavily armed infantry. Um, and so too are the perioikoi. And uh, one key thing is that we often talk nowadays about the Spartan army, Um, but actually there was no such thing uh, because the spartans almost always fought alongside the perioikoi in a joint army um, and the ancients always referred to this army as the lacedaemonians which is one of sparta's uh, official names so the so-called spartan army was actually a lacedaemonian army so for most of our period both the spartans and the perioikoi were heavy armed hoplites and Towards the end of our period, um, some Spartans were diverted into being cavalry. Um, Sparta didn't uh, create a cavalry until quite late on in our period, um, in the year 424 BC, when they needed to defend themselves against Athenian sea raids. Um, And Sparta's um, cavalry uh, increased um, over the rest of our period, but it was always a a, a subsidiary armed to the the hoplite infantry.
0: And a question for clarification, the Perioikoi, were they the helots or the uh, free but not civilians?
1: Um, Yes, the Perioikoi, uh, they're not helots, no. The helots are slaves. Uh, The Perioikoi are free Greeks. Um, They live in their own small self-governing communities scattered around Sparta's territory. Uh, Lacedaemon and senior, um, uh, their communities are self-governing, but they're they're dependent upon um, Sparta itself. They have to follow Sparta's foreign policy, and they have to supply uh, troops to Sparta's armies. Um, I said have to. In fact, there's evidence that the Peroikoi, um, because they share the ethnic um, identifier of Lacedaemonians with the Spartiates for most of the time, the Perioikos were quite happy to be uh, uh, allies of of the Spartans themselves and to share in this joint uh, enterprise.
0: Were Perioikois always hoplites or is there a difference between those two? And this might be a good uh, point in time to bring up the hoplites. Can you explain more also what um, this distinction of hoplites were in ancient Greece?
1: Yes, well, um, in most Greek city-states, um, you know, particularly the more developed ones, the hoplites um, um, are the dominant military force. Um, they're heavily armed uh, warriors. Um, traditionally, um, their offensive weapons are an iron-thrusting spear um, about two and a half to three meters long uh, with an iron tip and a, and a butt, and the butt has a spike so you could use it offensively if your spear tip breaks off. Um, They also carry a a short iron sword as a backup, um, although Spartan swords were especially short, they were more like daggers. Um, Their basic armour was a helmet, um, a corslet to protect your body, uh, and often greaves to cover your legs. So the Spartans certainly didn't fight half-naked, as is shown in the film Mm. uh, 300. And originally these items were all made of bronze, the the, the, uh, the defensive uh, armor. Um, and the helmet was the, the iconic all-enclosing Corinthian helmet uh, as shown in the film 300. And the Spartans at Thermopylae in 480 BC may well have worn this full heavy gear. But over the course of our period, um, armor became much lighter um, it became increasingly important to um, be mobile and light-armed troops started to become more important and he needed also a, a larger field of vision. So the Corinthian helmet was replaced by a simple conical, brimless cap called the, a pilos. Uh, the bronze cuirass was replaced by a, a fabric corset and sometimes even just by a thick woolen or linen tunic. And uh, but the key defensive item um, uh, for a hoplite remains the same. It's a large round shield called the aspis, which you wore on your left arm by inserting your arm through a central band called a porpax and gripping a cord or strap at the rim. Um, so the uh, shield was fixed to your left arm. Um, the shield was made of wood or, or wood or leather core, mm-hmm. faced with a sheet of bronze, mm-hmm. and fixed on your left arm. It, it protected the left side of your body, and it projected beyond your left side to give some protection to the man on your right. So your own right would be uh, protected by the shield of the man on your on on your own right. So um, hence the importance that the the phalanx, as it's called, the 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 ranks of hoplites, um, they needed to keep in formation. And hoplites are a very effective fighting force as long as they keep in formation. They're very well protected, um, but in their, with they in disorder, they quickly become vulnerable because your right side lacks lack protection if you haven't got someone close by you on your right. And. Um, uh, finally, and um, many related to Spartans, the final item of gear is a, a standard crimson garment that all Spartans wore, uh, either on its own or under body armor. Um, and uh, it was simply called the, 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 the foinicis, which simply means the crimson.
0: So, uh, a lot of the accounts of Sparta in, in fiction got the color right. <laughs>
1: Indeed, yes, that, that's the one thing that they do get wrong, yes.
0: <laughs> okay, um, and I want to clarify, so the hoplites, were they always citizens, so Spartans, or were they always uh, paracoys, or could it be a blend of both? Um, well,
1: yes, the, the, the hoplites... Um, 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 Many of them were, were, were full Spartan citizens, but but many of them were also Perioikoi. Um, um, right near the start of our period, the army was um, roughly evenly div- um, divided, 50% Spartans, 50% Perioikoi, and they're all hoplites. Um, over the course of our period, the number of Spartans goes into decline, and so the Perioikoi um, come to take up a higher proportion. Um, by the end, it probably is about 30% Spartans, 70%
0: Perioicoi. What's known about... So I want to ask about the reputation then. So the, the uh, martial reputation in contemporary times about Sparta. Um, in your research, uh, and you've, you've combed over lots of evidence on this, do you think that the reputation is uh, matches the evidence?
1: Um, well, both yes and no. Um, and we we need to distinguish two things. The first thing is the Spartans' record in warfare. And secondly, the second aspect is the role of military affairs at home in Sparta during peacetime. Now, um, scholars um, have long recognised the effectiveness of the Spartan army in war but um, the evidence also shows that um, the Spartan, I mean, was not invincible. The evidence shows that the Spartans often had the edge in battles between heavy infantry, but there were also records of, of military defeats. And there were also aspects of warfare such as sieges or the use of cavalry, at which the Spartans were not very good. So they were very good hoplites, but uh, not very good at these other things. And even as hoplites, they didn't always win every battle. Um, so that's the their record in warfare. Um, the other aspect, um, the role of military affairs at home during peacetime. Now, over the last 200 plus years, in fact, since the American and French revolutions, um, scholars have normally regarded Spartan society as very militaristic. Um, They've argued that it had a primary emphasis on military training. Um, But in recent years, that view has begun to change. There's been a growing realization and there's evidence in the the text for this that the Spartans were actually only part-time soldiers, that Spartan life involved um, many other civic and private activities, um, not just preparation for war.
0: Interesting. So would you... When you look back then on ancient Sparta and their and their military, would you say that they were more uh, uh, martial centric than other city states in this period, less martial centric, or about equivalent to other major uh, city states in this period?
1: I'd say they were s- slightly more uh, military focused. Um, I mean, o- all Greek states. Um, had to devote attention to um, um, war because it was an ever-present possibility. You know, there, were, there were hundreds, at one point even thousands, of small city-states in the Greek world. Mm-hmm. Um, they are often liable uh, to be at odds with each other, not all, not all the time, but uh, it was always a possibility. Um, so, war was a everyday fact of life. But in 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 other Greek city-states. Um, all the soldiers, you know, were just part-time soldiers. Um, They had other occupations and and so on. Um, And the Spartans are not too different in that. Um, The one difference about the Spartans is that um, all Spartans have these helot slaves who farm their estates. Therefore, no Spartan has to work uh, to provide his own living. Whereas in other city-states, it's only um, uh, a, a rich elite that are in that position, and most uh, citizens are working farmers or craftsmen or uh, uh, other activities. Um, and so it's often been thought by scholars that because the all Spartans had these helot slaves, that they had you know, total free time to devote purely to training for war. Um, whereas in fact, um, the Spartans actually engaged in the range of leisure pursuits, uh, the same as any other Greek elite. and. Um, Warfare was an important part of that, but it was by no means the only thing. Um, and the other thing I'd say is that the Spartan state is rather more systematic in how it prepares for war. It, it's, it's more efficiently organized in, in, its, in its military preparations. Um, that doesn't mean that rank fast Spartans spent all their time on military preparations, but the state uh, had a system in place that was, was much more effective.
0: Okay, so you touched on some things with the types of people. So let's speak more about um, recruitment and, and people in, in, in the army. What's known about um, the percentage of, let's say, Spartans or, or paraikoi's that were required to serve in the army from a conscription perspective? So I'm curious about that and then um did women have a role in the army and then anything known about age so a minimum age for recruitment
1: okay um, well, i'll start with, with the women because um that's important and um, um no women didn't have any um active role in um in Spar- in the spartan army um and in fact um For most of our period, Spartan women would not see any military action at all because Sparta's campaigns were almost all abroad. Um, Only in the very last years of of this period, um, for the first time in in 370 BC, uh, only then was Sparta ever invaded in our period by a foreign army. And the sources record that the women were quite shocked by their first experience of an actual war, um, seeing their properties burning uh, and being under enemy attack. Um, but, to, to, but women are, are not, not directly involved. Um, as for the men, um, it was a duty for every Spartan, every Spartiate, um, to, um, to serve in the army. Um, and you served in the army um, from age 20 um, and you continue to be liable for call up until you reach age 60. So, so all, all Spartans from 20 to 59 inclusive um, were liable for call up. And often the Spartans chose the younger age groups, so they didn't always pull out the full range for all their campaigns um, because it was reckoned that the younger men were fitter, stronger, uh, more likely to be effective. Um, and the Spartans, like other Greeks, played a, uh, placed a great emphasis upon physical fitness rather than on having specialised skills. Um, like other Greeks, the Spartans thought that fighting with a spear and sword was a natural thing, you didn't have to train for it. Um, so their emphasis was mainly on how physically fit you were to withstand the fatigues of soldiering, and that's why they tended to, um, uh, unless it was a dire emergency, they tended to... Uh, uh, call upon the younger age groups, perhaps up to the age 40 or up to age 50 um, and only call out the, uh, the 50, men in their 50s in uh, in emergencies. Um, so, so, going back to your question, all all uh, reliable for military service. Among the paranoicoids, it's difficult to know because we know far, so far much less about the paranoicoid we, we don't know then how many periolikoi there were. Um, so it's more likely that, um, as in other Greek states, it was only the relatively well-off periolikoi that served in the army. Um, to be able to afford the, um, all this uh, armor and weapons that I mentioned, you had to be quite well-off and you had to provide it out of your own resources. Um, among the perioikoi it wouldn't have been provided uh, for you by the state, so it would have been um, the very rich perioikoi and to we say moderately prosperous um, uh, farmers uh, or merchants or craftsmen um, so probably only a proportion of the uh, the population of the Perioquois would uh, would fight in, in the army
0: what's known about the military's? Discipline and training.
1: Okay, well, um, it's often said, as I mentioned earlier, that the Spartans were full time professional soldiers, and actually, that's very far from the truth. Um, they were only part time, both in, in their campaigning, um, even during the peak of Spartan warfare, um, the percentage of time they spent on campaign never went above 33%, and often it was 10% or less. And it's similar regarding peacetime training at home. There's little evidence for dedicated military training. For example, there's no evidence for weapons practice or for mock combat. Um, And as I mentioned already, much of the training was based on physical fitness. So you'd go regularly to the gymnasium, uh, do wrestling and uh, other sports. And also um, Xenophon, our best source, tells us that um, for men over age 30, hunting, which which was done on foot, was regarded as the best occupation uh, because that improves your physical fitness. Um, and the only one item of specific training for war um, that we know of is marching drill. Um, the ability to for the army to maneuver effectively as a unit without falling into disorder. And Um, Sparta's armies had the reputation of being able to perform battlefield manoeuvres that are beyond the reach of other Greek states. Um, So it's it's as a collective that the Spartans excel, rather than as individual soldiers. Um, But how much time did this um, marching drill take up? Well, Xenophon, who who himself was an experienced soldier, and he knew Sparta well, says that the manoeuvres could be actually learned quite easily. because the hoplite phalanx was organized through files and all each man had to do was to follow the man in front of him in the file and that didn't require extensive training and the practical reason behind this was because as i already said a half or more of the hoplites in the army were perioikoi many of them were working farmers or in other occupations they had far less time to get together or uh, dedicated training, so the whole army, both the Spartiates and the Perioikoi, had to have a uh, a system of uh, marching, um, and manoeuvring that could be learned with comparatively little uh, time spent on it. Um, and uh, but that little time the Spartans spent on it meant, meant that the um, uh, the drill worked out very effectively. The, the, the army could could manoeuvre very effectively around the battlefield. Um, well, must maintain its good order.
0: And you've mentioned uh, the, the phalanx a couple times now. For someone that is new to that term, can you describe what that um, uh, position is that uh, the military would take in a battle?
1: Yes. Um, the phalanx refers to the, um, the body of hoplite um, soldiers um, and is organized according to ranks and files, um, the, the ranks are. Uh, if you look, if you look at a, if you're facing, uh, coming to face to face with a, a Spartan phalanx, uh, you see a, a, a long row of men in front of you, stretching to your right and your left, um, and and those are all the ranks. Um, and behind the front man in each of those ranks, there's uh, a file, typically of eight men, uh, although the number could, could could vary and it could be adjusted. Um, And um, so, for each front rank man, um, there will be typically be seven men behind him, and they would form this file. And it's this file that um, manoeuvres each each of each of the files manoeuvres in a coordinated way, um, so that the Spartans can 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 do their effective drill. Um, So that's what a phalanx is effectively. It's it's this this row of of, of ranks of soldiers arranged in files. If the front man, um, the man in the front row, gets killed or wounded, um, the unity of the failure can be maintained because the man behind him can step up and take his place and maintain the unity of the the front rank. And and also the the men behind the front man can also exert pressure by um, urging the front man forward And when the two armies come to clash uh, uh, physically, um, they can make a a kind of collective shove that can aim to push back the enemy phalanx. um, Because if you can get your enemy into disorder, um, they become vulnerable, more vulnerable to to your attempts to to spear them with your spear or or stab them with your sword.
0: The length of the spear has come up before on this uh, show with uh with with greeks um and and i and i don't what's known about the length of this the spears that the spartans had and when you've gone through the evidence do you believe that it was longer than uh other um noteworthy uh forces in history that fought against sparta such as the persian empire well
1: I mentioned um, earlier that the um, thrusting spear was typically between uh, two and a half and three meters long. Um, uh, I should say I'm not a, a specialist military historian, more a historian of Sparta, but uh, um, the experts are unanimous on that. Um, and mm-hmm. when describing the um, the Persian uh, wars, um, Horatus' comments regarding the Battle of Thermopylae, that the, um, the Greek spears were longer than the Persian spears and therefore they were able to, to get at them before the Persians could reach them. Um, and there was a general uniformity in, in the length of the spear across the Greek world. But moving to the very end of our period and just beyond, um, the Macedonians um, developed uh, the much longer Sarissa, um which uh, um, I, I don't have in my head the exact length, but it's certainly rather longer than the... Uh, um, than the maximum Greek spear of a, a hoplite spear of three meters. Um, but the Macedonians could do that um, because they, they sacrificed um, the size and solidity of the, uh, of the shield. And because the, uh, a Greek hoplite carries a shield fixed on his left arm, um, only the right arm is available to wield the spear. Um, whereas the Macedonians, they, um, they were used the size of the shield and you carry it just uh, um, uh, loosely um, uh, wrapped around your uh, your shoulder and therefore you have both hands free to hold your, your sarissa. and therefore it could be much longer um, and, and, and that uh, it was often effective when fighting against uh, the shorter spears of the Greek hoplites.
0: You've mentioned a few a couple different tactics uh, and strategies, uh, such as the the phalanx, and you spoke at some length about the phalanx as a, a tactic uh, during battles. Is there any other tactics or strategies that the Spartans deployed in battle that you feel is noteworthy to mention?
1: Um, yes, um, there's one particular uh, tactic we came about accidentally at first, but then it was deployed um, after that. And that's the tactic of um the army extending its right wing so that it overlaps the edge of the enemy's left wing um, and then it's able to to, to swing round and, and start attacking the enemy from the side as well as from the front and, and that happened uh, accidentally um at the um, battle of mantana in 418 BC um when um, both uh, sides um uh, inadvertently ended up slanting to the right as they as they went forward. And Thucydides who described the battle says that it's um, because each man had an unprotected right side, they always crossed a bit towards the right uh, in their march forward. Um, and so it happened um, inadvertently that uh, uh, both sides, their right, were also overlapping the enemy left. And the Spartan king Aegis, who was worried about his left wing being sort of encircled, and um, he ordered it to um, to move further left, and he would ordered um, some of the units, two of the units from his right, to move into the gap so created. Um, but these the commanders of these two units refused to do this order, and so the enemy poured into this gap created. Um, and at this point, Gaius um, was able to wheel his whole army rounds to the left in order to come to the aid of his defeated left wing Um, and this was a manoeuvre that no other Greek army could have done and in doing that he he won the battle now having done that almost you know uh, as a necessity uh, at Mantinea at another big battle at the Battle of Nemea in 394 the Spartans did that extending their right wing on purpose Um, and again what happened was that the uh, Uh, Their left wing was defeated uh, by the enemy, Um, but um, the Spartans on the right wing overlapped and then marched sideways across the battlefield, mopping up all the enemy troops. And as the victorious enemy right was returning to the battlefield, having pursued the uh, Lacedaemonian left, as they came back to battle, they had their right sides exposed and they they were easy prey for for the Spartans doing that. And then the final battle that I'd mention, where the Spartans seem to have tried to do it again, there's a bit of controversy because the sources are a bit contradictory, is the Battle of Lutra in T-71, which is Sparta's big defeat that provokes the collapse of her power. And it seems that the Spartans tried again to extend their right wing for the overlapping uh, manoeuvre, but the Thebans, uh, opposite them, um, adopted an effective counter-manoeuvre They massed their troops on their left wing and made an in-depth head-on assault on the Lacedominian right wing, which is where the king was, and they pinned it down, killed the Spartan king, and ended up winning the battle. So um, that's an example of how the Spartans often develop a good technique, but then they tend to stick with it. They're not very good at sort of uh, um, devising new tactics. Um, They tend to to fall back on what worked before. And that's of course vulnerable then to enemies um, being aware of what they're going to do and devising effective countermeasures.
0: Hmm. It's a good segue to speak about for a moment uh, the evolution in this period from a tactic, strategy, and an equipment perspective. Earlier, you spoke about iron spears, iron swords, Corinthian helmets, um, some other things. Um, was there any evolution that you noted in your research? over time any improvements of their equipment or uh strategies
1: well uh, there is a general trend in our period towards um lighter armed, more mobile warfare and um, i mentioned uh, that you know the, the Spartans themselves and indeed uh, other greek hoplites um o- over the course of the fifth century in particular they, they lightened their equipment um and ha- had helmets with greater visibility, Um, and and this was because of the increased importance of light-armed troops, Um, and um, when you weren't just fighting a battle in an open plain uh, where there was two heavy-armed fanatics coming together, when it was a question of uh, um, more almost guerrilla style warfare, or warfare in mountainous terrain, where uh, you were vulnerable to um, being attacked from the heights or you could do it yourself, um, there became an increasing premium on having uh, light-armed troops um, who were much more mobile. Um, They're sometimes called peltas but peltas is just one form of light-armed troops. Um, And and indeed the Spartans themselves um, they sometimes employed the helots as light-armed troops, the helot slaves, at the final battle of of the Persian War, the Battle of Plataea in 479, um, there were 10,000 Spartans and Perioikoi hoplites, but there were 35,000 Helots armed as light-arm troops, um, and uh, adding bulk and mobility to, to the army. Now the Helots weren't always employed in that way, that was a, an exceptional mobilization of the Helots, but um, the Spartans in more normal occasions when they weren't facing a massive threat like the Persians. The Spartans had in their within their territory a people called the Skyti on the very northern borders, the mountainous areas um, on the border of Lacodaimon. And they were often acted as light arm troops. They were these light armed troops were often mobile javelin throwers. They didn't have to come to close quarters with a thrusting spear. They could run up to a phalanx, discharge their javelins and, and then ran out of reach, and then repeat the maneuver again and again. And so the Spartans came to employ the Skirotai for this, and also they employed mercenaries from, 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 uh, from other, um, uh, other places in the Greek world uh, to act as their light arm troops. And the Spartans also tried to develop their own tactic for dealing with attack by uh, enemy javelin throwers. Um, they had their young men, the men in their 20s, spread across the whole of the line um, and at the point where the javelin throwers started to um, run back in retreat, they, the Spartans would often send out their youngest, fastest hoplites to try to catch up with them. Um, and that's, of course, why these hoplites were now um, ha- wearing much less heavy gear. And sometimes it did work. Sometimes they were able to catch the peltas. Sometimes it didn't. Um, but it, it, it was you know, the lightening of the hoplite equipment made it a possibility. Um, a feasible possibility on, on some occasions. Um, and we also find over time um, the Spartans um, engaging, um, uh, hiring um, other mercenary troops, um, for, for example, archers. Um, the Spartans started to create an archer force uh, again in the 420s BC, and they often used mercenaries. Uh, and particularly mercenaries from crete uh, um, Cretan archers were famous throughout the Greek world uh, as a this was a speciality of uh, of warfare in Crete. so we find Cretan armors uh, hired as mercenaries by the Spartans, and also um, people called slingers who use kind of kind of catapults to sling small lead bullets um, and there, they have a similar role to the the archers and the the uh, light armed troops, and that their, their aim is to disrupt the hoplites. Um, you know, if you've got, if you've got a halo uh, arrows and uh, and these lead bullets coming at you, it, it can throw the phalanx into disarray and enable the, um, the enemy's hoplites uh, then to, to get in among uh, uh, the uh, opposing hoplite force and, uh, and cause more damage. So uh, the Spartans do adapt. Um, and then, of course, the other adaptation is the development of cavalry. Um, the Spartans don't have any cavalry, as I've said, until 424. Um, mm. They create their own cavalry uh, 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 after that point. And at the end of the 5th century, either side of the year 400 BC, they actually um, reorganize their army um, such that the hoplite divisions um, have a cavalry contingent working in parallel with them. So whereas formerly the hoplites have worked on their own and cavalry is an entirely separate contingent um, um, from the late 5th century onwards um, the cavalry and the, uh, the infantry are working at least in theory they, they, they work, they're working more in common as part of the same division um, the Spartans are never very effective at cavalry um, and it doesn't seem to be as well organized um, Uh, as the infantry was, Um, Mm Xenophon, who tells how it was partly responsible for Sparta's defeat at Lutra in 371, says that um, the horses were provided by the very rich Spartans, and the actual cavalrymen only turned up um, at the point of mobilization. So um, um, he didn't get to know his horse until it was time to actually take the horse out on warfare. And I don't know whether you've ever seen uh, the modern pentathlon in the Olympic Games. Uh, I, I had the opportunity to actually attend the uh, Under-Olympics in 2012 and I went to the modern pentathlon. And whereas in the show jumping um, and other Christian events the, horse, uh, the the horsemen are working with uh, uh, horses that they've trained in their own stables and so on they know them very well. And um, in the modern pentathlon one of the disciplines is that you have you're given a, an entirely random new horse Um, you've never seen before and you have to do a a show jumping routine and it it was evident, so watching it that some of the horses uh, and riders just didn't get on well together they hadn't had any time to really uh, um, form a working partnership and that seems to have been the case with the the Spartan cavalry too and that's one reason why their their cavalry was was not as effective as as cavalry of other Greek armies
0: you've Spent a lot of time on many parts of Sparta, not just military. How many years have you been uh, studying the history of Sparta now?
1: Well, I first started it um, when I was in my third and final undergraduate year, um, which was when (laughs) 1973-74. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) A long, long time ago. (laughs) Almost fifty years.
0: How how Um, many how many trips to Greece have you made over the years?
1: Um. Um, I, when I was younger, uh, an old philosopher, I, I, I was, you know, visiting Greece most years. Um, mm-hmm. Since um, uh, having a, a family and and uh, now caring for elderly relatives, uh, I have more you know, commitments at home, um, and, and so the opportunity to, to travel sort of haven't been a frequent. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I've been to Greece and to Sparta itself uh, 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 many times. Um, And uh, the the modern city of Sparta did me the honor of making me uh, an honorary citizen of of, of their their modern city uh, back in 2010 um, uh, Uh, for for my contributions to the history of Sparta.
0: Isn't that exceptional? I've really enjoyed speaking with you, Stephen. Thanks for coming on the show today.
1: Well, it's been my pleasure, Andrew, and uh, good luck with with your series. I look forward to hearing the podcast.
0: Uh, Thanks, Stephen. Okay, everybody, the couple books again that Dr. Hodkinson wrote as examples that I mentioned at the start of the episode. He's author of Property and Wealth in Classical Sparta and he's a co-editor of Sparta and War. I'll drop links to both the books in the show notes on the Ithacabound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Stephen and everybody listening, as always, wishing a marvelous journey. Bye for now.
1: Bye, MJ. Thank you.